Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Soldiers of Cinema podcast. I'm Clark Coffey, and with me, as always, is Mr. Cullen McFader. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I had uh, surgery on my wrist last week, so mm-hmm. that's been that's been exciting. Uh, not really, actually. It's kind of miserable, but uh, side benefit is that I had plenty of time to watch your choice of film for today's episode, which, and this is going to probably, I mean, they've already seen the title of the episode, you know, when they clicked on it. So it's not like this is going to be a surprise, but I was surprised when you mentioned it. I was, this is actually, I, this is the one film of yours that you've chosen that I, like all the other ones I've been like, okay, that makes sense. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, sure, sure. Like I may not have seen it, you know, but I'm like, okay, cool. When you said Star Wars episode two, Attack of the Clones for this episode, I <laughs> I didn't know if you were being serious or not. I, 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 I thought, okay, is it April 1st? Oh, wait a minute, what's going on? And, and and let me preface like real quick. I I know I'm like going on and on here, Colin. I'll give you a second, but I just want to say because I started off kind of you could be like, oh, Clark's making fun of Star Wars, and I'm really not. Um, uh, Star Wars has a special place in my heart. The you know as a story, as an idea, as uh, the original films from my childhood. But um, I, I can't say that I'm the biggest fan of the prequel series. But there's a lot to talk about here. I think it's going to be a really interesting episode, whether you love Star Wars, whether you don't. It was just before dawn. They came out of nowhere. Do you have any idea who's behind this attack? We will find out who's trying to kill you, Padme. I promise you. Escort the senator back to the booth. She'll be safer there. I do not like this idea of hiding. Sometimes we must do what is requested of us. Dangerous and disturbing this puzzle is. You're using her as bait. I'm a Jedi. A Jedi? What do you know? Follow that speed up. You went that way. This is a shortcut. I think. Anakin! How many times have I told you? Stay away from the park, coupling. We decided to come and rescue you. Good job. But I'm curious about what was kind of behind your choice here. Like, what yeah, were well, you thinking? I, yeah, well, I, I was going to say that's funny when you said that the the fact that you were off for a week was the benefit of watching these because <laughs> I don't know I don't know if I would consider that necessarily a benefit yeah. of having a week <laughs> off to watch them. But no, so it actually came to me when. A few episodes ago, we were discussing the fact that somebody had mentioned to you that it's like every time we do a movie, we both like love it and Uh, uh, we're we're always like super into them. Yeah. And um, I, you know, I'm on your side with this. You know, it's not I didn't pick this movie out of a really a place of love at all, but more so a place of intrigue and interest. And, um, you know, I figured it would be a kind of interesting twist to take a movie that that I know we both aren't particularly fond of from a filmmaking standpoint. Right. Um, and what I do want to make clear is that this is not going to be an episode of us just like going through and nitpicking every little thing and no. like making fun of it and things like no, that. No, no. I have no interest in you don't either of, of doing an episode yeah. like that, but rather what we want to do is, you know, love them or hate them. These three prequel star Wars films, just like the original trilogy 
had a massive impact on how films massive. were made. Oh yeah, pop culture. Um, yep. You know, for better or for worse. And so I think it. I think it to me would be, um, and hopefully will be, a very interesting episode to discuss those kind of ramifications. Yeah. Like what what. And, of course, we're going to discuss the details of the movie as well. But um, I think the impact is really what drew me to this. And, and just yeah. kind of looking at the way that films are made today, especially, you know, big blockbusters where it's a lot of green screen and things like that. Well, that sure. all kind of started with, um, especially with Attack of the Clones to a degree Absolutely. with Phantom Menace. But especially that Attack of the Clones was kind of the one that everything sort of fell into place in that way. So, yeah, yeah I think it'll be... A really interesting discussion we've got um you know we had our little preliminary discussion and it was it was quite interesting and i think we just wanted oh, to jump I can't in wait. as we were no i can't wait there's so many yeah. i mean it's almost like you know this is going to be challenging because you know with the exception of going into like a four-hour episode i mean there's so much to talk about here yeah. um because you know the context is so important i mean we're definitely like you said we're going to talk about the film itself on its own merits as it stands just as a, a piece of cinema but you cannot separate and you shouldn't separate um this film out of lucas's legacy out of the legacy of star wars out of the impact of ilm and cgi and digital filmmaking and i mean it, it you know and i hadn't thought about star wars much until i started watching this film again and and just to give context to to the listener because i had all this time where i kind of had to sit and be pretty still and have my arm kind of elevated and i couldn't really do much and mm -hmm. all of the like anesthesia is wearing off so i don't know how much that colored my viewing experience because i still still maybe had some of those drugs rolling around in my head as i watched these but but um i, I actually not only did i watch episode two but i actually started chronologically with phantom menace and i watched that this and then the third and then i went back and i watched the original trilogy because i hadn't seen uh, any of these six films in a very 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 long time mm. and i i think and, and i i they really blend into me and i i don't mean any disrespect but the more current modern like disney star wars films really blend into me and i think i've seen one or two of them mm -hmm. i don't even know which ones i've seen i i can't even tell them apart to be yeah yeah. Frank. So I kind of I left the Disney Star Wars films kind of out of the equation in my mind. But yeah, I did Lucas watch was uninvolved, this... so it's like kind of yeah. unrelated to, to what we're talking about anyway. So Right, right. I'm, I'm kind of like those are not even in this conversation that we're having here. So but I did watch this film in the context of all of having uh, having recently seen all six. And I have to say I had forgotten, you know, how huge Star Wars is for so many people. I, yeah. I mean just culturally how monolithically gigantic star wars is as a story as a world as a universe and then of course watching attack of the clones i'm just like i mean almost everything i see on television or, or on the screen in a theater now in some way kind of owes at least something to attack of the clones i mean i i'm sitting here with my wife a few days ago watching a ted lasso uh episode of ted lasso right mm -hmm. it's just like you know single camera sitcom basically right and every time they're in a studio or hell, almost every time they're in any location, so many of the techniques that were pioneered in Attack of Clones have made themselves all the way down to like a little, you know, uh, single camera comedy yeah. on yeah. on TV, um, where the entire environment is is non-existent. And then where we've moved now, now you've got our you know light screens and just this continued expansion of virtual worlds, the continued mm -hmm. uh, usage of CGI and its evolution. The innovation of digital cinema. Digital cinema. Yeah. Oh my God. So, there, so there's a ton. I mean, there's just a ton. And so I have 
mad crazy respects. I just want to say this right off the top before we go into things. I have a huge amount of respect for George Lucas. I'm fascinated by him as a filmmaker Mm -hmm. and as a businessman. I'm fascinated by the stories that exist behind these films and how he was able to achieve so much, how he's had such a huge impact on, I mean, you know, he's behind ILM and then kind of therefore also behind Pixar. And THX. And THX, and you know, I mean, it, you would be hard pressed to single out a single person who has had a greater impact on the industry and the technology of cinema than George Lucas. I, yeah. You just have yeah. to admit that, and you can't deny it. And it's absolutely worthy of respect and discussion. So I just want to preface that long winded, but no matter what I say here, I have a huge amount of respect. Well, much like Lucas talking about how he had found it very tough to, you know, cram as much as he could that was that he felt necessary into these movies. I feel like we're going to have a similar situation where we're just well, trying to let's... fit everything we can into this movie. Well, but you know, I, what? So I did or into this podcast, but I, I did something similar to you where I, I, yeah. um, I didn't get to watch all of them. Um, because I just have spring is always a very busy time for me for work, so I just have been completely inundated with schedules and things like that lately. But um, I watched, yeah, I watched Phantom Menace, and then I watched this one just to get myself in the context of what the movie was like. And and you know, obviously, I saw these movies, have seen these movies before as a kid and things like that. But um, well, let's talk yeah, about I that. To, yeah, let's yeah. get let's get into let's the, get, the, yeah, get, our personal experiences. We love to let's let's start yeah. there. We'll we'll just take this elephant bite by bite. So. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so let's talk about personal experience. Um, you know, cause I, I thought erroneously, it sounds like that you may have been exposed to the prequel trilogy first, but it sounds like you weren't even though no, you're no. quite a bit younger, but yeah, yeah, go into your, like your personal experience with this film originally. Yeah. So I, um, I don't, I, I do remember like being very young and seeing a new hope, you know, star Wars for the first time. And, um, I mean, presumably at home, right? Like yeah, on... I do actually, I remember I was at a friend of my mom's house. I was probably only three. Like I, I have no memory other than remembering that I was terrified of Darth Vader. And I thought that mm. it was like, I was so young that I couldn't even interpret the events. And I just have this very, very distinct memory of thinking that princess Leia was inside of like a cage in a zoo when she's in the prison and that Darth Vader was some sort of gorilla that had put her in there. <laughs> and that was my interpretation of these scenes. And just to be clear, like I was so young when I first saw that movie that I couldn't read the opening crawl on my own. Like I do okay. I have a very vivid memory of um, wow. my mom's friend's son reading the opening crawl to me as it happened. And still I got remember it, but you remember it. Like it's yeah. out enough in your memory that even though you were illiterate, I mean, it sounds weird to say illiterate, but you're yeah, supposed to be, you're like a child, yeah. but yeah, you, you can't even read. And, and, and you didn't even, you weren't even able to understand the plot, which is pretty simple in the first, you know, in new hope. You yeah. still could, but but you it stood out enough to you. It had enough of an impact. You remember it. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I very very distinctly uh, remember those those two things specifically. Not much else about it. And then when I was probably around the time, like a little bit before Attack of the Clones came out. So what was now, how old are how, right? how So I would how, have been four at that time. Okay. Whoa, uh, so whoa, whoa, the first whoa, time wait. I saw it, I would Hold have on. been. Hold yeah. on, we're going yeah. too fast for me. My brain, <laughs> I know you're young. Okay, so let's just, I just want to, so, so it's 2002. Yeah. You, you, as a very, how old are you again? Um. So the first time I saw New Hope was probably a little bit before that. It was probably around 2000 the first time I saw New Hope. So you're like two. So I was two years old, probably. Oh my gosh. I, so that would be my guess is like, I, I, again, I have no memories other than those two very distinct blips of just when, like. When did you see Attack of the Clones? 
probably around the time it came out. I can't remember if I saw it in theaters or if I okay. saw it slightly after. But what I do know for sure is that when I really got into Star Wars, because that first time I saw it, when I again, when I was illiterate, couldn't read it, remember nothing about it, um, I didn't fully understand it. I didn't. I was like a toddler, right? Um, when I so around the time Attack of the Clones came out, which is two thousand two, so I was around four years old. I remember, I think it was a bit before it came out. My dad bought the original trilogy, like a DVD box set. Okay, um, it was the old like gray ones. If anyone remembers those at home, and so we watched through them, and then um, you know it was basically like that might as well have been the first time I saw star okay. wars because that that to me was really when i got super into them i was like obsessed with them and oh, okay. i don't remember okay. if i had if i saw attack of the clones in theaters or if i saw it at home i can't remember that now did you see phantom menace had you seen Phantom uh, no, no, Menace? that came out i was one no i had not seen phantom menace either okay. i hadn't seen it all yeah okay. um, i saw the prequels out of order um okay. but i do know that i saw return or um revenge of the sith in theaters i definitely saw that like opening day mm -hmm. um but uh so i was yeah i was really into um like the original trilogy and uh i think we briefly talked about this like 30 or 35 episodes ago when we were talking about what got us into filmmaking but as a kid i used to be really into watching like the behind the scenes stuff which is was great when dvds came out when i was yeah you know, because you know vhs very rarely had things or like ever that. if ever yeah, yeah if ever yeah, yeah. i don't um, ever remember i mean it was so rare where i, I had a see... few that like at the end of the credits it would just roll into like a like maybe a 20 minute reel of of well, pts when i was stuff. a kid when i was a kid we had none of that the, yeah. the closest yeah. that i ever got to behind the scenes stuff would be like uh press kit stuff that let's say like maybe hbo or you know showtime some like pre, you know premium cable channel right they would right. basically run as kind of filler you know and f basically i'm sure studios gave them this content so it was like free to them they would run like these press kit videos uh you know maybe 10 15 20 minutes whatever of like promoting a film that was going to be coming up on hbo soon you know so that was like the yeah. closest you ever got to behind the scenes and usually those were pretty you know they were cheesy just promotional interviews and stuff with the actors is what those mm -hmm. usually mm -hmm. boiled down to but i, I ha, i'm jealous of you i didn't get to have exposure to that behind the scenes well, stuff but that's what and that's i think what got me into filmmaking right like i remember okay. watching jurassic park the behind the scenes for that and a little bit later yeah. i watched the behind the scenes of lord of the rings which are basically like film schools unto themselves and oh then, my gosh yeah, but like, star yeah. wars too like i remember watching you know them making the models and shooting the models and and yeah. i think a big part of why that impacted me so much was because i was like i can do this like okay. all they're doing is filming basically Lego sets, right? Yeah, right? Like that. So, so that's kind of where I think like my start in filmmaking kind of happened. And, that's and also the other thing too was that you know everything in the originals um, was all like you're just out in a forest or you're on like a glacier or you're in a desert or something. And like I remember it would snow at school and we'd have a big you know we had this huge field in my elementary school and we'd build trenches and like pretend that the AT-ATs in uh, Empire Strikes Back were coming and we were like the rebels fighting off these things. And so like, <laughs> it was like very tangible that you could act out and pretend and be in these movies as a kid. Whereas I, you know, even though I grew up while they were coming out and a lot of my friends liked them and things like that, I never really felt the same connection to the prequels um, for kind of those, I think, two reasons well a the plots were a lot more convoluted and complicated right. and i think that like for my entire childhood i just didn't know 
what these movies were about. Um, but also, <laughs> I don't know if I still do. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's still it's still a good question of, of whether I do. But um, I also remember, like, yeah, you know, I'd watch the behind the scenes on them. And I'd be like, well, I, you know, they're just doing everything with a computer like i can't do that like i can't yeah. i can't remake any of this stuff unless of course you know i turn it into something practical but i'm not watching people and learning from people doing things that i can sit down with my vhs camcorder and do right um, and then same thing with the locations right like especially you know phantom menace there are some practical locations there are some practical effects and things like that but attack of the clones the vast majority of locations and props and sets and things like that and uh, just visual effects in general are all uh digital right mm-hmm. um so there was no like i you know i couldn't run around in the snow and pretend to be in phantom menace or in attack of the clones or whatever because it was just so you didn't want to be jar jar binks a... you didn't want to run around i mean <laughs> well, i know that that's the, not attack that was of the, the only exception was that i would walk around <laughs> as jar jar um but yeah there was there so so i think that that was a you know in in brief that was kind of my experience firsthand with these movies like i don't recall the first time that i saw them yeah um, specifically but i do know obviously i you know i grew up with them and so i so they are a very ask. huge part of my childhood but okay now the let me original ask, trilogy I mean, was definitely much more impactful on me when you did get older mm-hmm. uh i assume you probably revisited the films you know not to study them like we're doing here in the podcast but i'm assuming you revisited them when you were older where you you know you you could kind of wrap your head around it a little more yeah i mean yeah. what what are like you know what do you feel like just like before we kind of dive in and get kind of analytical about it i mean what's your just like gut kind of feeling the, that, that first time you, you remember watching them and you were old enough to kind of really formulate, you know, an opinion about it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the fact that I had just seen them all so frequently, like even though I wasn't super fond of the prequels as a kid and, and again, didn't have that connection, I still watched them a lot just because oh, I would okay. watch all of them. Oh, okay. um, And so I, I, I don't know, it's, it's tough to really remember like a, a time when I had, perhaps with exception to this time rewatching them because this time it's been, probably a decade or more since i've seen them um okay oh wow okay but um as a kid you know even getting into like my early teens and things like that like they were just so constant in my life that i kind of just so what did you think then now what what did you think when you watched this film and you know you can kind of put it in a little bit of the context that you saw phantom phantom menace yeah yeah yeah. what are your thoughts now then so you watched it recently here you are in your 20s like just this film as itself as a piece of cinema what did you think about it you know, I I probably had a more positive experience watching it this time than I ever did as a kid. Okay, like, what do you think? And that I was? think because I was I was I was analyzing it and I was looking at it through a completely new lens, especially as someone who has like now actually made movies and and yeah, um, and in the context of where the film industry is today too, and understanding that a lot more. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that you know positive in the sense that I like was like oh you know what i actually love this movie because i I have the same opinion in terms of like you know i don't know when the next time i would really want to watch this movie ever will be but i think positive in the fact that i actually got something out of it um you know like i definitely watched it this time and sort of went like that's actually a really interesting decision that george lucas is making there like i I don't know if i necessarily agree with the decision but it's very fascinating so as far as like the story goes like if we just boil it down to the most you know base kind of like Mm -hmm. the story is not pulling you in like that you're not watching this and being kind of captivated by the story or the character there's no level to which i was like yeah you know 
rewatching yeah. it and engaged with it. It was more like an interesting experiment, which again, I would consider a positive because I was sure. interested as I watched it. I was like, this is, I'm just yeah. so fascinated by this. And like, why, why did that happen there? Why is there a, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, a, well, a, a diner owner with four arms who pulls up his pants and you know, <laughs> so like this, this very bizarre stuff, but it, it is kind of a little bit <laughs> entertaining. I, the in thing that is, sense, the right? thing is, is that like, as you describe that, I mean, I can, to the absolute nth level of detail, remember exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> because when I saw it, I just had the same thought. I'm just like, I'm trying to just peer inside the mind of Lucas and understand yeah. exactly like, I mean, he is a unique dude. Like a you very, you just I would have to admit, die to a, go out for lunch with him. And as, I would as love David Lynch describes, get salads and yeah, you know, yeah. like I, I would love, I find, lucas and even lucas's you know i'll i'll be brief because we'll talk about this a little bit later but um lucas's outlook on art in general i think is really really fascinating Ooh, so, i i i definitely do want to get to that i want to hear more about it because i'm not sure that i actually have really read much or you know i kind of i can see through his through the work that he's done i can maybe in, in you know uh, extrapolate uh, mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. he might think, but I'm interested to hear what you've learned. But I'll share my personal yes, experience yeah, real quick yeah. too, just to kind of provide like some contrast, or you know, maybe to yours. So obviously, being 47 years old myself, I wasn't old enough to see the New Hope or uh, Empire Strikes Back at the theater, but uh, I was I had seen them though on like VHS, like taped it off HBO, or I actually think I had seen. New Hope many, many, many times as a young child. I, I don't know exactly why this is, and it could have just been like my own personal logistics like we had somehow, you know, but I don't think, I think New Hope had been on like cable TV, but it took a lot longer for Empire Strikes Back to do the same. So I, my exposure to Empire Strikes Back was much, much, much less, but I saw Return of the Jedi at the theater. And I have a very specific memory of that because my father took me to the premiere in our local city. I mean, you know, the premiere in St. Louis where we live. So, but and, mirrored with my experience with Revenge of the Sith in that sense. Okay, yeah. And yeah. and I and even and I'm young. I mean, when was Return of the Jedi? Uh, 83, released? I think. 83. Okay, so I, I think I had just, yeah, so I had just turned probably seven. If it was because I think it was like May or something, like spring or something of, yeah. Um, so I just turned seven. And, and I remember because like the, the local TV news even interviewed us like after we got out of the screening and it was like, what'd you think of the movie and stuff? And I mean, of course I loved it. I'm a kid and I'm in a theater and it's my dad's taking me. I mean, it was an awesome, I still remember it. And I have extremely fond remembrances mm -hmm. of that. Um, having said all that, and just to give context for the, for the, when the prequel series came, I, although I liked these films as a kid, they were far from my favorite films or films mm -hmm. that I really, truly felt connected to. I, and I would have, we've talked about these. It was, I think, the first films that I selected when we kind of switched formats for the podcast. But that was actually the Mad Max trilogy, original trilogy, was was the kind of film I was much more interested in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just gr grittier, more kind of exploitive. Um, but I, I just, I, I was captivated by those Mad Max films and especially Road Warrior so much more so than I was with Star Wars. Um, again, not to say that I didn't dig them as a kid, but it just it, it just wasn't the same thing. 
Um, I mean, honestly, I even, you know, I feel like I liked like Indiana Jones series a lot more when I was a kid and even like the Rocky films, I kind of, I think I felt more attached to it than Star Wars. So liked them, but it wasn't, I wasn't like obsessed. I wouldn't, I wasn't like a fanatic about them. So when the prequels came out, I had kind of the same experience. I think that a lot of people did. I went to go see Phantom Menace. I didn't see it on opening day or something. I wasn't standing in line, but I went to go see it at the theater and I was pretty disappointed. Mm -hmm. I was pretty let down. Um, it, it just, it, I was older. Uh, the film seemed to me to be made for somebody who might be like eight or six. I don't While know. Simultaneously you know. dealing with like intergalactic right. politics. And- <laughs> and, and, and what, right, right, right. It would be like all the action and all this kind of humor was kind of clearly geared towards a very, very young child. You have a very young protagonist. Um, but then you had these long sections of like diplomacy talk and, yeah. and politics and stuff. And I'm just like, well, neither of these things are interesting to me at all. And so I, I, I really just kind of dropped out of the Star Wars world at that moment, to be honest. I can't remember when I saw Attack of the Clones. I don't know if I saw it at the theater. I have no recollection if I did. Um, I, I don't know. Matter of fact, when I was watching it now for this podcast, I still couldn't remember if I had maybe ever seen it or not even. Right, right. I, yeah. I, I honestly don't know. I don't, I, I was, I, maybe I had seen it years and years ago and I just forgot most about it you know, most everything about it, but I don't, I honestly don't know. Mm -hmm. I really don't know if I even saw this film before. So, um, but, but so to fast forward then to now having watched it now, I mean, I think a lot like you, you know, I was watching this kind of interested, certainly interested in, in the context of the technology and the cultural impact of Star Wars as a whole. Um, and how this was such a, like, you know, shot across the bow or this like, you know, this really initiating a sea change in how cinema was going to be created and how much on the cutting edge Lucas actually was with this technology that he was pushing through with the making of this film. That's all super intriguing to me. Um, Lucas as an artist is interesting um, to me and the impact that he's had, but the story didn't do a whole lot for me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was, I found myself being pretty bored with the film um i wasn't very engaged with it i had to really continue to kind of turn my focus back to the yeah definitely yeah it was i mean it was honestly kind of a a little bit of a work of Mm -hmm. you know willpower uh to get through it i just wasn't very uh i thought you know when there's humor it's kind of not my sense of humor it's uh when there's action it i i don't feel like there's really any significant stakes I think that's one of the big issues with this, this series as a whole is that, uh, especially with like moving forth from the, the original uh, trilogy, I don't believe any of the stakes ever. It's always like, you know, the universe is going to, you know, be destroyed, but I'm like, I never buy any of the stakes. Um, I keep getting introduced to more and more and more characters that I care less and less and less about. With very um, bizarre names. We, uh, yeah. And, <laughs> and I, I, I can't keep track of all the planets. And, and, and then, you know, I think one of the most, and I'm the, by far from the first person to ever take note of this, but, you know, this move to um, make tangible and literal the force from yes, being kind of like, like a, a spirit, like, like, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. This like metachlorians or something yeah. like d- d- just all these like decisions that he made, uh, man, you know, just really left me kind of cold. So uh, yeah, so I guess a lot like you, uh, I respect so much that surrounds the film, and I'm interested in so much that surrounds the film. But the film itself, I just really don't think too much about. Well, I think perhaps that's a good segue to go into because I remember 
again watching the behind the scenes of the movie and still to this day reading about things about like that lucas said or that he did mm-hmm. during the, the making of this nothing controversial of course but um i've always just had this thought that like did it it doesn't seem like he really even wanted to make them it's, and yeah, there's kind of a caveat with that too which is yeah. that i think that he did the original trilogy directed and wrote a new hope wrote the story for but not the screenplay for and didn't direct empire or return of the jedi he might have written the screenplay or a draft of the screenplay for return of the jedi i can't remember but i know empire was definitely his most hands-off one uh-huh. of the originals right um and then i feel like he just kind of realized that he dug himself in this hole by like naming <laughs> them four five six and realizing okay now everyone expects me to do obviously one two and three and you know just well, now wait the fact but, that but he, back like, then but wait like help i well, sorry to interrupt uh, uh, sorry to interrupt um, but but back then, that wasn't known by anybody. So right? only like, when A New Hope came out. A New Hope was the only one that didn't have a number originally, originally. but then when Empire came out, that it had episode five. For real? In the, yeah. E- and that even was when, in its original theatrical release, not when so, he like, yeah. redid them. Because, so before um, before Empire came out in 80, um, like a month before, they re-released A New Hope with a number in front no. of it so people wouldn't be really? confused. Yeah. Um, so he he made that decision then, which is kind of insane when you think about it. But yeah, he, I know was, that's so weird because he didn't want people to be confused going into Empire, being like, "Why is episode why is this episode five? Have I missed four other ones?" So um, it's so confusing, dude. Yeah. So anyway, so I think that he, with a caveat, a caveat to that being that he realized, you know, I'm swimming in money. Mm-hmm. I can make these whatever I want. He self financed them through Lucasfilm, mm-hmm. of course, his company that he had full control over. Um, and I think he was just like, I'm really interested in technology. I'm really interested in furthering special effects and things like that. I'm just going to yeah. kind of use these as a vessel yeah. to make all these technological advancements to try out all these new filmmaking toys, which, hey, I don't blame him for that. That, that If sure. I had that money, I'd do that too. Sure. And then, but you can tell that he really did not care about the plots because, well, um, because he wrote them in like, I think it's famous that he wrote Phantom Menace in like two weeks or something or or this one he finished the, the screenplay for like three months before they went to and it was the rough draft that he finished three months before they they went to camera and so huh. and, and again i think both of us also kind of agree that like plot isn't super important i don't focus on plot but when nothing else is going on in the movie it yeah. is kind of nice to well, be able to grab onto something and go like okay there's a trajectory here but yeah um, I, I mean and i you know there's going to be people who would listen to this who are you know star wars experts and 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 i'm not one you know yeah. and so i i don't want to speak out of school i don't know you know I, my understanding of his writing you know was that he spent a lot of time and wrote really long drafts and had all this backstory but i'm not sure you know i don't want to contradict what you're saying because i'm not sure about any of that you know um exactly but I mean, I do the, the part that like resonates with me, though, that I that feels right is that, you know, I mean, he's always cl- very clearly been very interested in the technology of filmmaking. And he's always been on, wanted to be on the cutting edge of that. And, you know, even with the, the first Star Wars, you know, in 77, I mean, it, with his creation of ILM and all the effect shots there. Now, of course, they were doing, you know, um, uh, models and, and, and some other stuff. But I mean, I, I feel like the work that it's hard. Well, I was going to say, I feel like the work they did for that holds up so well and it does, but I also know that it's been modified over the years in different, it's been augmented in different ways 
but you still see model work and everything there. They haven't replaced that with CGI, and it holds up so amazingly well. And I would I would add, it looks so much better than the CGI in Attack of the Clones. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think you're probably right. I mean, it seems to be, you know, it's so tough. I don't know the guy. I'm not inside his head. But it seems almost like that's a reasonable argument to make, that he made these films as kind of an excuse to do a lot of work pushing ILM and pushing digital filmmaking and pushing CGI. I, you know, I, I mean, he says that he wants to make films for kids. I think I, I feel like I've heard him say that about these films, that that was important to him and that he wants to tell a story about how power corrupts and, you know, this, this whole long story of the, the, you know, the dark side and, and the force and, is it Palpatine, the guy who, you know, is like, he, he's just this politician, but then, you know, in a moment of crisis, he's given all this power, and that power, of course, corrupts ultimately and leads to, you know, the Empire and, you know, all this. Well, and that's his whole plan, right? That's Al- Palpatine's secret plan the whole time is he's pulling the strings on both sides. <laughs> right, right. So I, you know, so so I don't know what George's motives are, you yeah, know, but, yeah. but it definitely does seem like he is heavily invested in the technology behind the films, at least as much as he is as the story in them, and maybe more so, arguably, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it, 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 you, it's certainly hard to argue that he wasn't successful, uh, at least as far as it goes monetarily speaking, because holy crap. I mean, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about, you know, his direction and his writing. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, let's focus on the writing first. I mean, you and I both kind of hinted that, you know, when we watch the film, it kind of goes, it vacillates really hugely between, you know, these giant epic kind of action sequences with all of these, like, clones or droids or whatever you know all the, this like giant stuff going on cgi everywhere all over the place and then these like extended you know what i was particularly just amazed by was how much just people sitting around talking there is in this film i mean it's like oh you know right off the bat it's like we open up and we're in this room with like 10 jedi people just talking on and on and it's like boring i'm like I, why do i even care about this and there's so many scenes of just really not compelling dialogue spoken in not compelling way. Yes. Yeah. And and it's like, it's kind of an interesting contrast because for all that, like his Lucas's focus on technology and, and, you know, getting kinetic, captivating, awe inspiring images, you know, these giant worlds and creatures and, and spaceships and everything. And then it's just like a bunch of people talking in a room for so much of this film. I was, you know, I kind of was surprised I'd forgotten about that. Well, it's also funny because, again, you compare even, again, the first, start, like A New Hope, to to the prequels where yeah. A New Hope's a very exciting, fun um, movie. Like, it's 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 very simple and, and straightforward. And so I always think it's kind of odd that, you know, that, that that's kind of where my, my thought that, like, maybe he just really didn't pay a lot of attention to the the screenplays because he wasn't beholden to you hmm. know some big distri- uh, production company because fox distributed. so maybe he didn't but, have well, checks and balances you know yeah and, and maybe, so so it's it's yeah. interesting to me that you know of course that like the themes and the 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 overarching traject- trajectory of the story of the prequels is very similar to the rise of like hitler or um like octavian the roman emperor 
mm-hmm. uh, or, or Napoleon even, where it's like, you know, you have this chancellor granted emergency Mussolini, powers who winds yeah. up kind of securing that. And, um, and so there's clearly an idea of, like, desire in mm-hmm. terms of telling this grand operatic story about these characters and yet when you get to the moment to moment of how it's done and how it's executed yeah it falls apart um it it really does just slog at a scene to scene basis where you're just you just have it's like it's almost like you know i used to really be into as a kid it's really weird but i used to be really into film noir and like 30s and 40s film noir movies yeah. And a lot of them are great. But you know you've got a bad film noir movie when it is just the main character going from location to location asking people questions and then that's <laughs> and then finally he, you know, reveals the plot at the end and that's it. Right. And that's what this movie reminds me of. And in intentionally so. Like I think Lucas very much was actually pulling for a kind of noir feeling with this movie. You can oh, tell really? that in the, in the lighting in some moments, like when oh. they're inside, there's the the slits and he kind of wanted it to be almost like Obi-Wan is like a detective in this movie and going to track down like who's trying to kill the, the oh, know, God. Padme. I didn't, and, I didn't pick um, up any of these complexities. And, but... <laughs> and but, but you wind up again with that kind of bad thing where it's just Obi-Wan showing up to a location, asking a few questions, getting his next lead, going to the next place and doing the same thing and rinse and repeat with some, you know, action scenes scattered about right um, and some like and, goofy goofy like droid comedy yeah some and, like kind nothing... of like creature a, a little like weird creature farts in the background and laughs for yeah. a second you know? yeah I mean, it's just yeah. weird no, and nothing nothing comes naturally like, there's no element of the story that that is, is like occurs in kind of some natural way it always yeah. has to be like a character for some reason making often a quite bizarre choice um and then you know like just again, this is really nitty gritty, but um, for example, the the Padme and Anakin thing. Obviously, they've got to get together um, oh, and have God. Luke and Leia. You know that has I mean, to it... be established in, in these three <laughs> movies at some point. Right, um, right. But why a a like ancient monk religion that forbids attachment and forbids romance would send the two like. 20 year olds who have been talking about how much they miss each other and think about each other and dream about each other very openly why they'd be like yeah you know what let's send them to the like italy planet with the beautiful lakes and... <laughs> the so italy I, it's planet. just it's it's it to me is kind of this thing where you have a situation where somebody wrote out all these things all these beats that they have to hit okay anakin and yeah. Padme, they've got to get together obi-wan right. has to find the clone army he has to discover like these secrets and the separatists and all this stuff because we got to start the clone wars we got to get to there this and that and that and so what you'd wind up with is having someone writing backwards you've got someone yes being like i've got to get to these points because because he made the movies backwards he made four five six one two three and so it's like yep well i know i have to get and i'm not super interested in these plots i'm more interested in the technology so i'm just going to kind of be like okay well if this happens and they get there that's fine and i think that that's where these movies really fall apart again i'm not cribbing on on george lucas i think george lucas is a really neat guy i think i think that he has a really positive outlook honestly on on filmmaking and things like that um but i do think that that's kind of where my theory comes from that he just really didn't want to you know have to make these movies i think that he just got fell out of love with star wars and probably got sick of them understandably after them blowing up and being all anyone talked about for like 
15 years and probably every interview you've got to talk about them and be asked questions about them and things like that well why do you think he so. didn't make any other well okay i want to i would a couple things one yeah. i want to comment on that and then i want to ask a question i almost blurted out there but i want to <laughs> wait a second so okay i you know well I, I could tell you i mean i listened to the commentary track for attack of the clones and, and for phantom menace both actually mm -hmm. um and I, I was struck by how often Lucas would refer to the challenge of having to backfill all these story elements, like you just explained in detail. Um, you know, he would constantly talk about, oh, you know, okay, in this scene, I okay, gosh, I had to get this character here, and I had to get that character there, and I had to, you know, I, I had to get, you know, plant this story seed, and da da da, da you know. So he was constant. I mean, you you can tell that it was he brings it up so often that it was. It, it seems pretty clear to me that it was a, a major challenge. It was a major part of his focus was how do I. You know, it's like, and you got to think of it too. It's like, not only does he have those original three stories that, like you correctly s stated, he's got to kind of backfill, right? He's got to, he's got to, every story point that he talks about in these films has to kind of end up somehow paying off in a, in films that have already been made and yeah. consumed, you know, and memorized by people, right? It's not just that these films have been watched by millions i mean they're like memorized by millions of people but you also have this huge universe now of comics and novels and you know cartoons and mm -hmm. spin-offs I mean, yeah you've got this giant star wars universe that fans are know to the like every little detail about and how, how in the world do you go and make films that are going to stand on their own but also somehow fit into all these other pieces of story and this universe and also like kind of pay off so to speak in those original three films i mean that's profoundly challenging i mean it's got to be an extraordinarily difficult challenge and, and and still have the films stand up on their own be interesting on their own make sense to somebody who's watching them on their own i mean you just can't i don't think you can meet all those requirements it's just not possible so yeah yeah i think you're right i mean the compromise is huge now question i might ask you would be you know if, if your hypothesis is true that lucas kind of maybe was burned out or was fulfilling kind of what he felt like was an obligation to make these three prequels. I'm, I, I, like, why do you feel like he's never made another film then that's not been Star Wars after all these? Well, yeah, that's so that's a that's a so his wording is after he made the prequels and had, um, you know, the response that he got to them. Uh, I think it was in like 2006 he did an interview where he basically just said, oh yeah, now I'm just going to make a bunch of art films that nobody will ever see but me. Right. Whether or not he's done that, I'm not sure. Um, hmm. But I think that, yeah, I think and that kind of goes into, I guess we can talk about this now, um, which is his philosophy on filmmaking and art, yeah. which I find very fascinating. And I think actually probably will answer that question, um, which is that ironically the guy who invented star wars seems to really really hate the commercialization of like art and i think sort of saw star wars as something that mm. originally he was very passionate about obviously he, he made the first one with like blood sweat and tears and was super yeah. passionate about it absolutely but also just found himself like hating the the politics of filmmaking in such a big budget level that at Hollywood and getting this like franchise and every again pop culture and mm. um kind of speaks about the way that that 
the merchandising, especially when you know he made he's made billions and millions of dollars on merchandising alone yeah. of Star Wars, um, that that was kind of like a means to an end. That he was like, I'm going to use that money to put towards my own films, which again, that's what he did here. These these are financed by Lucas and Lucasfilm, um, and it seems like when he describes this thing about like he talks about. Um, for example, he talks about filmmaking in the Soviet Union and like Tarkovsky and things like that, uh, you know, directors like that. And he talks about how they weren't beholden to any sort of dollar sign that they could make these movies. They were funded primarily by the government. And he was like, you know, there's obviously a lot of issues with Soviet Union and things like that. But that the fact that, you know, a filmmaker could just get money to make art for the sake of the cultural like benefit of that and not to re make a return on an investment and not to make a huge box office hit and things like that, that you could just have filmmakers pursuing perhaps a very pure form of filmmaking that that is really difficult to do in, you know, the U S and Canada and, and most of the Western or most of the world today period, because filmmaking is an, is an expensive, right. Uh, you know, process. Um, and so he talks about that with like great envy though. He talks about that with this really, really like, you know, it's almost like this twinkle on his eye when he, he imagines being able to do that. And so I think that that kind of is an insight to me that it's like he, you know, if I look at his filmography in terms of the stuff that he's produced, obviously he produced the Indiana Jones movies and things like that. Like perhaps mm -hmm. he's just not interested in in um, directing larger budget movies, period. That might just be uh, something that he feels like he, he would rather, maybe he is making these little indie art films that nobody has seen that he says nobody will ever see and just keeping them for himself. So that, it that just could seems, be... I, I just, I, let's expand on that. I mean, this is interesting to me. So obviously like we're just speculating. We don't know. I've never met the dude, much less talk to him. And I'm not an expert, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know all the hints that might exist out there in interviews or Q and A's or, you know, whatever might exist. But you know, it's like we, you know, we have a guy who comes out of the box with three really successful films that he writes and directs right yeah. you have 1971's yeah. thx 1138 which is a really interesting film in my opinion you have american graffiti in 73 which i think is also a really good film and totally unlike you know star wars right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then he has star wars in 77 which he also produces and boom i mean that that sets everything in motion now he he operates as a producer for a lot of other things after that but with the exception of being the writer for Return of the Jedi, he doesn't direct anything until 99, yeah. Phantom Menace, yeah. okay? And then he does, you know, Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, 99 through 2005, he writes, produces, and directs those three films. And then never again does he direct mm -hmm. or write, okay? I, it's so intriguing to me. I mean, if what you say is true, the guy's got more money than God, He's not beholden to anyone. He is in the position that you claim he envies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why I just, you know, if, if I, and so I'm not, and I'm not arguing against you. I'm just curious. I'm like, no, well, that's why I think do you it's, think I it just, think did, he's did so fascinating because him out? Did he it just is burn kind him out? of, it's like an enigma. Like, I think that that's one of the reasons that I find him so fascinating to discuss because it's like, I don't, I, I, I genuinely, I don't have other than the things that I've seen him talk about in interviews and, you know, that I, that I just relayed. Um, I don't know why he, he wouldn't be like, I'm going to finance my own 
drama and you know do something I mean, I, more in line with american graffiti or thx right. or something like that you know i mean i wonder i wonder if he's just kind of feels like kind of trapped i mean i wonder if it's just he's you know star wars has become such an all-encompassing like cultural monolithic gigantic thing mm-hmm. i i almost wonder if he feels like if he does anything else it's almost like he's typecast well, right. typecast, yes, yeah. yes. But he doesn't have to, like, he could make any movie he wants, right? Yeah, I mean, he yeah. could self-finance any movie. He could, you know, there's, like, nothing he couldn't do if he wanted to. But I just wonder. I just posit the hypothesis. I mean, maybe it's kind of like he feels like Star Wars is such a legacy and it's such a gigantic thing that's gotten so much bigger than him. I mean, maybe he feels like if he puts something out there that he could somehow damage that or affect that or tarnish that. I mean, what if Lucas put out just like, again, just being hypothetical here, let's say thought experiment, you know, Lucas comes out with a very highly personal film. That's, you know, kind of like an art film, like you describe. And it, you know, it's completely just radically couldn't be more different than anything. Star Wars. And it's, you know, and and maybe it's controversial. Maybe it's, you know, it's dark or maybe it's, you know, who knows, you know, I mean, even the smallest things, I mean, it's like people could look at that, right? Watch that film and be like, whoa, this is also in the mind of the guy who brought us Star Wars? Ooh, that's kind of creepy. Yeah. There's like yeah. weird s- sex stuff in this, or maybe, you know, or it's kinky, or it's weird, or it's, you know, I don't know, whatever the hell, right? Yeah. So it's violent, or it's, you know, it, it something, you know, ask questions that are like scary or something. You know, it could be a great film, even. But people could maybe look at it and be like, oh, gosh, I didn't realize, like, the mind behind my favorite Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Jar Jar and Jar Jar <laughs> is like so dark and like mysterious. Well, you know, so I don't know. Yeah. That's just one example. It's just one kind of hypothesis, right? Where it's like there's, I mean, there's merit there, too, because I mean, there were Spielberg talking about how much challenge he had when he was doing Schindler's List about being like this family friendly director who is suddenly doing this really graphic Holocaust yeah. movie. Right. Yeah. So there's definitely a possibility that yeah he could just be like feel but like i think even more so into yeah and i think but i think i think lucas is even in a, even in a more challenging position in that you know at least you know spielberg had made a lot of different kinds of films mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he was making something i mean there are critics of schindler's list but i mean it's not like that was a controversial film in the sense that he was like denying the Holocaust or he was on the side of the Nazis or, I mean, he was kind of telling the story of a quote unquote good Nazi, which is a little challenging and controversial, but I mean, he was definitely saying like a culturally acceptable thing at the time. He wasn't, he wasn't telling some controversial story. It was just that he was outside of his typecast as a director was his challenge. So imagine even further than being outside of the, typecast challenge but like potentially being in fear that like if you made something that was received controversially you know as an artist that you would like maybe tarnish this you know 50 plus years of the single most mythic cinema story in history i it's i'm just guessing i'm just totally speaking out of my butt here but i'm just using my imagination to think wow that i mean it would be intimidating to to be like kind of the author of something that huge and then you look to try to create something different and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't, who knows what the heck could happen to everything I've done before this and this empire I've built. And yeah. Just a thought, you know, or maybe you're right. Maybe it's just as simple as like, God, I'm exhausted. He's old. He's 80, you know, probably from 99 to 2005. It probably took a ton out of him. He's, you know, got more money than God. Like I said, 
he could just be sitting there like, hey, I just enjoy spending time with my family, my wife, and hanging out. It could just be as simple as that. But, yeah. you know, he's no, got I, great I, hair. I do, Maybe I do, he just again, spins. I do think that this is why it's he, he makes a very fascinating subject. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, because like you have to guess. Yeah, because yeah, you have to and, guess. And, but and I, you know, it's, it's like it does spark, I think, of a larger conversation about filmmaking, um, which I think actually, again, probably a good segue to actually get into the the i like the technology specifically yeah. that he pushed and changed so much um yeah it's super you know, interesting these movies changed everything um, right this was I, I i do recall at the time being this like weird controversial sort of or semi-controversial thing about having actors just stand in front of green screens and react to nothing <laughs> and all the again all like the behind the scenes interviews of the actors talking about how it's it's really tough to be and boy you know, you especially in the third one with um what's his name general grievous i think who is the entirely cgi droid monster that, that Obi-Wan fights. It's a, it's a droid that and coughs okay. yeah yeah and um you and mcgregor describing the fact that it was like really tough to play that scene because he had nothing to play off of it was just like a you know a tennis ball yeah. on a stick or whatever um and that was like this new, weird, wacky style of filmmaking. Well, look at, you know, any of the Marvel movies that have come out right. or any of the any most big blockbusters that have come out in the past, um, you know, 10 years. Or, or like you said, Ted Lasso, like this yeah. watching a, a even just a, like a sitcom, a single camera sitcom. And that's the norm now. It's almost more bizarre to do an action movie where you use no green screen than it would be to use entirely green screen or blue screen. Right. Well, um, I mean, I yeah, and I think you can you can see that in the performances here because we have great actors. Like by and large, there are great actors yeah, in Samuel this film. Jackson, McGregor, right? Um, like all the yeah, uh, and, Christopher and, Lee. Yeah, there's great actors in this, and you know, actors who have gone on to give great performances, you know, before and after this film, for sure. So it's not a question that there's not talent in this film. There's definitely talent in this film. Mm -hmm. So I mean, but but maybe what we're looking at is, um, you know, a, a different style of acting had not yet kind of come to maturity. Mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. actors didn't have great experience acting in a green screen, you know, in a room with nothing to a tennis ball, like you said. And so it's probably a combination of actors, but also directors and the filmmakers themselves giving better tools to actors to work in those environments where, you know, now we have an evolution of performance where there's still some challenges for sure. But by and large, performances have much improved in these virtual environments. But I think mm -hmm. in this film, we see... I mean, the act, the performances really take a hit. I mean, they're also challenged with delivering just, oh, uh, just really difficult, difficult, difficult. Wooden uh, dialogue. The dialogue <laughs> is just sometimes so challenging. And yeah. so it's like, I can only imagine. I mean, you're, you're staring into nothing. You're looking at nobody. And then you've got Lucas's dialogue to deliver. Well, I mean, and I think that that's probably an insight, too, on the difference, again, between like something like A New Hope, where, yeah, Lucas wrote the screenplay for that. And there's a lot of really funny stories about Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford <laughs> kind of yeah. making fun of Lucas to his face about how bad the yeah. dialogue was and changing yeah. it. Because Lucas just didn't have as much power at that point because he was, you know, he was that wasn't something that he was entirely self-financing then. And now with his kind of totality of power in these movies, perhaps it just, it was his he's choice Palpatine. to make. He just he's kind become, of like, whoa, okay. He has become so what he feared. <laughs> that, this is it. Like, this is it. He he is like the Palpatine in his own Star Wars mm -hmm, world mm -hmm. where that's it. 
Dude, yeah. you, you you've nailed it. I mean, We've this is like it. the meta, <laughs> like the, the the meta story within. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's definitely possible hypothesis. You know, I mean, when he made Star Wars in '77, he was so much younger, and I think I I have no doubts he was a confident filmmaker. Um, but maybe, yeah, by the time, you know, we were all around to 2002 and he's making this film, you know, maybe he didn't, uh, he it, he was less likely to change what he had written based on the, you know, critique or criticism or feedback from the actors. I don't know. Um, but, uh, it, you know, he probably, my guess is that he felt like he had to be much more specific with it again, because just based on his commentary, it's like he felt like he had to service all these different me- mechanizations in the plot. You know, mm-hmm. and so that the and you just have exposition upon exposition upon exposition of these characters saying things and they have to be specific to fit into all like this jigsaw puzzle of, you know, has to. It's like taking a piece, putting it into a puzzle that's already almost completely solved. It's like the piece has to be, you know, fit in all these weird ways on every side. You might side. have to take some scissors and, and <laughs> you know, cut it into shape to get in there. Right. So, <laughs> it so might yeah, make sense. Probably, and, and yes. so so I, I think it's also really fascinating because obviously the movie was this was so Phantom Menace was shot on film this was shot on digital this was yeah one of the first um, like full length feature films to be shot entirely digitally right um, which as we know completely changed the film industry as well um, yeah it, it in a lot of ways you know democratized it and so that's probably one of the pros that right that it really ushered in an era where you and I could could go and buy a camera that you know i shot my first feature digitally of course and, and sure me um, too of so, course i've never gotten to shoot on film yeah the only thing I, I've, I've ever shot, shot on, on like 16 and 8 millimeter but never a feature um, yeah yeah and never on 35 and yeah. you're right i mean it, it and it really is extraordinary and is certainly you know on the cutting edge of that i mean and it's just you know and you definitely can see it though i mean you know the film doesn't look great in my humble opinion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i mean like it's was shot on the the sony Sinalta hdw f900 boy that's a mouthful which is like a two-third <laughs> inch sensor but i think yeah. you had talked about that's not even i mean it says it's a cine camera but yeah it's a modified broadcast camera to right suit cinema like so it can shoot in 24 frames per second right. as opposed to 30 and things and like that, that was, and so. that was a big deal then right yeah. i mean being able to actually match digitally 24 frames per second which of course is the speed that that most f- uh, films are like actual film films film movies are shot in of course you can ramp that up and ramp that down for different special effects mm-hmm. but 24 frames per second would be what you'd need to match a film movie and you couldn't do that before i mean video was always a totally different thing so that was a big deal and but I mean, gosh, you can really see kind of the infancy, uh, the impact, the infancy of this technology had on the film. Because well, I, I, per- I, I personally think it looks much, much, much worse than the first three films. Uh, in the, Yeah, in the and film. even Phantom Menace. Like I think Phantom Menace, for all yeah. of its faults, actually looks decent in a lot of moments because it's just you have a nicer medium to work with. Um, and even the practical effects and the digital effects seem to blend better because it's... If you have, you know, film naturally kind of just washes everything into each other almost a little mm-hmm. bit more, makes it a little bit more, you know, painterly and things like that. Whereas digital, you find that it can, you know, with really hyper sharp digital and digital effects, you kind of have this like almost, it looks like a cutout that's <laughs> kind of walking across the screen. So, so I think that the, so even, yeah, that, that kind of almost in a way worked against the, the visual effects. I find that, um, and it was also something that that Lucas really wanted to do because he could then 
go into more digital effects. And so it was kind of a double whammy there where yeah. not only were the practical and digital effects in Phantom Menace a little bit better looking because there were fewer digital effects, more practical. There was a, it was a more established style of filmmaking. But here you've got him going, okay, if we're shooting digitally, then I can use way less practical effects. Like there's only a few notable practical effects in this movie. I know that the big Coliseum at the end is a practical like miniature Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of like Camino stuff, the clone planet was, was some miniatures. And I think some of the, um, like inserts on Coruscant when he goes to the, like the, the diner, I think that was a, a enhanced with CGI, but I think that was actually a practical, yeah. um, like model. Um, so you've, you've got a few, but again, you're, you're leaning way more into just a full reliance on, on digital effects here. And yeah. not only that, um, but you also wind up with, again, with something like a broadcast camera. Like, you lose so much dynamic range on these early broadcast cameras. So the highlights are all blown out often, and it really does make it look a lot more video. Mm-hmm. I think subconsciously audiences do notice that stuff and kind of go, like, why am I... Like, even if you know nothing about the technology, right? you might be sitting there kind of going, like, well, why why does this look kind of weird to me? Um, and so I think that those are all, like, really... And I think it's also interesting that... Um, you know, people often look at Avatar, which came out in you know, 2009, as the inception of digital projection. Um, obviously, digital projection yeah. existed before that, but Avatar was really when digital really projection became it. widespread. Right. Um, but Lucas was, when this came out in 2002, pushing for theaters to um, switch. And a few did. Not everyone did. But it actually, right. if you look at kind of the numbers, it really started here. Yeah. Um, Avatar was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, but it, it, it ultimately was Lucas here really pushing right. for digital projection, digital projection, digital projection that started that um, that switchover, much in the same way that it started the switchover to, you know, wholly digital projection. The vast majority, if, if you know, a, a listener who perhaps doesn't know much about the industry, the vast majority of films and TV shows these days are not shot on film, they're shot digitally. Um, and it's usually reserved for either very special projects or established directors um, right. who get to actually shoot on on real film. So, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. it's very interesting. I mean, you can't overstate. You really can't overstate in in, in all the different ways the impact that mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. film had, and, and and as part of this trilogy, of course, behind ILM and George Lucas, how much it's had on the on the whole production process of cinema. I mean, you know, from the from the cameras and the medium that it's used to shoot the um, story with, moving to digital to CGI versus practical effects, uh, and then to distribution itself, where instead of sending reels of film to a theater, they've just got a, a file that they play on a on a projector. yeah a little DCP yeah yeah so it it really and, and obviously we're still experiencing um, the transition of a lot of those things uh, and the progression of those technologies and so mm-hmm. you know it's like and. and uh you can love it you can hate it you can you know but it, it's just it, cinema has always been an art form that's been you know deeply connected to technology they go hand in hand 
uh, it's not like painting where canvases and paintbrushes haven't changed, you know, hard and even paints have yeah. hardly changed in, you know, 200 years. Um, a painter is going to like want to smack me in the face because I'm sure the technology of paints have definitely changed. But you get my point, I think, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that, you know, cinema has always been deeply connected to technology and it's then it, technology has pushed cinema and cine, cinema has been pushed technology. And so it's like you can't fight the evolution of that in a sense. Yeah, but, yeah. I, I, you know, on a personal note, though, I just do want to say, I mean, I talked about kind of feeling like one of the reasons, one of the big reasons that I felt so disconnected to this film was that I didn't feel any stake really in the, in mm-hmm. the story, right? I, I just, the stakes don't feel real. I'm not afraid for my characters. I don't, it just, I, you know, a big part of that for me, and I, I'm old, I'm 47 years old. I grew up in a world before CGI, so I know. I'm like, you know, people call me boomer, even though I'm not a boomer, guys, I'm Gen <laughs> X. But I get, I know, it's like, I'm gonna be, here's my boomer moment. Make Maybe we could have like a section where I have like a boomer moment. Yeah, right? we got a little I, intro. Yeah, a bit like yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe I'll put an intro moment. on this. We can get a piece of music, <laughs> we can get some kind of music for it. But, but you know, it, and I was in a conversation with somebody online about this um, where, uh, oh, it was it was a debate about uh, best chase best chase sequence in a film, and they presented uh, the chase sequence in the Matrix, maybe the second Matrix film. I think it's yeah, where loaded, yeah. Where they're in all the Cadillacs, you know, and on the highway, and, right? On the highway, right? Yeah. And and they destroyed like a hundred Cadillacs or something. Cadillac sponsored that is what I remember most about that scene. Uh, and they they suggested that that was you know maybe one of the best chase sequences that had ever been put on film. And I retorted with, I think that the final 30 minutes-ish of Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, is a by far superior chase sequence. And there are several reasons why I think that, but one of the big ones, I argued, was that when I watch that Mad Max 2 chase sequence, I see real people on and in real cars, in a real environment, doing real stunts, while I'm not negating the fact that, of course, there is movie magic going on, I know there's movie magic going on, and they're cheating everything they can possibly cheat because you can't just like throw people under cars. Yeah, I get could, there's that. There's a I limit that. to the danger, but yeah, yeah. But it's but there is something that happens where, in my mind, that reinforces the fictional story I'm seeing, where I know these are real people. And that there is a real athleticism and there's a real risk and there's actually something real going on in front of the camera and I'm watching it. Yeah. Yeah. That to me, it, it's so much more impactful. Let me try to make a, a, another analogy. Okay. If I listen to, let's say I'm listening to a piece of music, I'm listening to like Eddie Van Halen play guitar. And I don't know anything about guitar. I've never seen a guitar, right? I don't even know what the hell a guitar is, but I'm listening to it. And I can appreciate this piece of music. It's like these notes that are flowing forth into my headphones. And it, it sounds pretty wild. It's like a bunch of really like high-speed notes. And wow, okay, that's cool. But then let's see I, see, I see a video of Eddie Van Halen playing that same piece of music. And now I'm looking at a guitar and I can see how it's made. And I see his hands move. And I recognize now because I can see his hands moving on the fretboard that there is a profound amount of athleticism and dexterity and and that God that must take a ton of practice, right? There's like a there's a performance going on here, is what I'm mm-hmm. trying to get at from a human that I can clearly see required a profound amount of talent. Well well, even it would be the sort of That's the difference. The difference. Um... It would be like the difference between going to see something like I always ask people about this when when I have this conversation, which is, 
would you be more engaged if you were seeing a play like a mm -hmm. you know in-person theater mm -hmm. um and there was a point where somebody got lit on fire Mm -hmm. And they actually lit somebody on fire, obviously with like safety stuff and stuff, but you're sure. watching a play, so you don't know any of that. Right. Versus if they just took like a projector and projected flames on them, which can look cool, it can look really right. good, and there's artistry to that too, but what would engage you more? Probably the real fire, right? Probably well, something it's an interesting question. Yeah. It's an, I don't know. I, I mean, it's an interesting question. That's an interesting analogy. I think the reality of it is that if that happened, it would probably take people out of the story because they would actually think the person was really on fire. And I think an audience would freak the F out. But, oh, I mean, of course, in, in the context of a but play. But I get your point. Have, yeah. but, but I get your point. I just want to finish that it's um, but I, I do get your point. I agree with you. I but and and again it's not to say that i i understand that the artists the hundreds the thousands of artists that it takes the animators the programmers the developers of the software i mean you know there are it, there is profound artistry in the cgi that goes into these films i understand that i do appreciate that but for me personally there is just something about seeing humans perform on camera that raises the stakes for me somehow, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's not, I'm not somebody who's like, well, CGI has no place. I mean, I'm not that. I'm not dogmatic about it. But so I guess it just kind of, when I watched this film and these, and what Star Wars turned into, I just, I just see cartoons. I, I really, mm -hmm. I just see cartoons with like a few humans in there once in a while. And I, that's just, it's just not compelling. Well, I, I think it even goes back again to the roots of the, the this podcast too where we're I can't remember what Herzog episode it is but we talk about how Herzog describes like he would never have done Fitzcarraldo um if he couldn't pull the boat over for real like he would never have done yeah. that as a miniature because the audience would just know that there was no yeah effort into that and that the right. whole point of it is that you're 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 feeling and exuding the effort of the actors who are there in the jungle literally pulling a boat over a thing and and i'm not anti-cgi either you know i'm actually in the process of trying to learn how to do um like computer effects a lot more effectively because it's something that i have a very big blind spot with right. and um, yeah. they can be super super useful of but course. i think that the difference is good CG, as with any visual effect, and this goes back to miniatures, this goes back to stop motion, this this is, is not just an anti-computer or anti-digital stance. Um, it's not really anti-anything. Um, but that good computer effects and good computer graphics, good CGI, should be there to accentuate and to enhance a scene, not to build a scene. It shouldn't be mm. there to build a moment. Um, that's one of the... I think that's just the thing, the reason I think so many people relate to practical effects even miniatures even though that is the same principle as cg you're not like it's not like the actors are really walking on a miniature they're inserted there through optical effects right um but the difference is that the way that you film the miniatures the way the light bounces and things like that there's just there's just a more grounded approach and i know a lot of visual effects artists one of my good friends works for digital or not digital domain double negative which is a really big famous digital uh, visual effects company and from the people that i've spoken to there there is a huge understanding of that there's a huge understanding yeah. that um that you know you've got to have a grounded sense of like realism and something grounding these effects in the moment in order for them to work and that's what is i think the tragedy about a lot of the way that films are made today 
um, mm-hmm. is that you've got directors and producers and things like that who perhaps don't understand how visual effects are made and so they are way too overly reliant on them you know you hear about all these horror stories about um, visual effects companies just not getting paid um, like on life of pi and a lot of the marvel movies where they're completely underpaid and overworked and where a director Mm. will come with like a week to the deadline and go like hey we need to change this element and it's something that would require the scene to be built up from the ground up and they just don't understand that and that's I think where the issue is and I think it's way easier to fall into that with digital effects than it is with practicals because as a director even if you know nothing about filming practical effects you still walk into a studio and say you can't just say like hey can we make this three times bigger and you just naturally yeah. would know it's well, intuitive wait, they, they, you know you, you can't. can't do that whereas yeah, with yeah, something yeah. like CGI you know it's like oh well actually I wanted Iron Man's suit to be a little bit darker than that yeah, to me, who doesn't know how to do CGI, that's easy. You just you think it's you know, like flipping a switch. You're exactly. like, well, just turn but, that dial. And but what like, you don't no, know no, no. is that it probably yeah. involves the textures. It probably involves the way that the well, light bounces off of that texture. It probably involves yeah, like, yeah, the yeah. way the actor's face reflects and things like that. And Profoundly so, complicated. Yeah. And, and I think you, you bring up a really good point, Colin. And, I, you know, we've gone a little bit down this path, but I think it's valid, though, because I think this... You know, the film that we're talking about, Attack of the Clones, is like like we've said, it's just it's it's this is like a crossroads in mm-hmm. cinema. I mean, mm-hmm. this is like the fork in the road. This film is the fork. And so it's it's I think it's worthy of spending some time on. But what you just made me think of is like, you know, when I listen to myself and, and I'm like always finding my own feelings about something as I speak. So, you know, I might feel something now about something. I might feel one way about something now. Yeah, but yeah. as I speak through it, I'm like always learning, and I, my 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 opinions are always changing. So I, I I don't ever want to get dogmatic about it. But as I try to better understand my own, like how cinema impacts me, um, and I think like, okay, well, why is that? Why am I more impacted by seeing like a real stunt person jump off a car, you know, onto a moving truck, right? And I can see that it's real, and I can see that it's moving. I'm like, uh-huh. well, it's be- because it amplifies the threat to the character, right? It's like. I know the stunt person is an is is an actor. I think stunt people are actors too. I would call them they're just a special they're a specialized oh, yeah. type yeah. of actor, right? So I, I see that that I know that none of these characters are actually who right. I, I know that Mad Max is Mel Gibson. I know that that guy with the mohawk, you know, on the on the truck who's jumping onto the tractor trailer is is not really in this real world and he's not really but, trying to kill mel gibson right, right? yeah and yeah. i know yeah. all that's fake but i but there's something about when you see the actor like uh, or stunt person do actual feats like in real life that it it actually helps emphasize the impact of of the character of the story onto you viscerally yeah. right yeah. like you you relate to it you're like oh my god can you imagine how like scary that must be to like have someone jump onto the side of your i mean you're like it 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 just helps create the, this visceral response because you're like holy crap like that's a human being doing that i'm a human being what if i were doing that oh my gosh you know i mean it's just it directly connects you to the char- to the story i feel like Computer graphics are, are 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 equally amazing, right? They take an equal amount of skill, and and even when I when I use that example of like the athleticism of guitar playing, I get that there is an athleticism to computer programming too. I get that there's an art. I get that it takes a huge amount of time. That it oh, takes absolutely. Yeah. that it takes a tremendous amount of time to learn how to do that and protect perfect those tools and develop your own style and. And it's this amazingly complex combination of science and technology and artistry 
And so it's just as compelling and interesting, but it's also so much more abstracted. Mm -hmm. It's so much more removed, though, from the visceral. And I think that's the challenge. It's like, yes, a stunt person jumping from one car to another at speed is it, it's it's simple in a sense. Uh, it's dangerous. Uh, of course, you, you can be a good stunt person and you can design that safely. But I mean, it's it's very simple, but it's very visceral, yeah. which works yeah. for cinema. I feel like when when you have like layer after layer after layer after layer of abstraction, it's harder for me as an audience to relate. I and so you were just saying like, well, the director can't even relate to the artistry of the of the um, of of the uh, of like what ILM does, the you know CGI. Uh, they don't even often can't relate. It's like, well, can you just make this thing different? Just because they don't under it's it's so elevated and abstracted and and specific. Yeah, yeah. It's such a specialized area of information and knowledge that it's like it's hard to be impacted viscerally by it. So I can appreciate an extraordinary vista that a CGI of a CGI world, but it's so abstracted to me that I'm kind of like... Whereas like the simplicity of a matte painting, I know the effort that it would have taken to, I get, to yeah, do. I get, right? yeah. And, and it's not, I think that that's the big mistake to me. And this would probably be like, yeah, the kind of my my final thought on, on this yeah. is just that I think the biggest mistake in the inception of like cgi as a filmmaking tool and i think that again most visual effects artists would agree with this um from the ones that i've spoken to and the ones that i've seen talk is that instead of being used as a new tool they were used as a replacement mm -hmm. and they were used to replace things that had already had established ways of doing things and and, and yeah. things that worked and and like you can very happily marry practical effects with yeah computer graphics and you can do very complicated things with computer graphics that are impossible to do otherwise and that's sure. fantastic it really unlocks a whole slew of things but you know when you have a, a director who's just like well we don't need to build any of this stuff because we'll just you know do it all afterwards and we don't need to actually film someone jumping from the car because we'll just get a digital fake body in there um yeah. that's when it becomes really really um you know, a, a, I think a net negative. Um, yeah. And, and I think that it's the shame because I think a lot of people are, in, you know, there's a misconception about it too. I think visual effects artists get a lot of flack for it that they don't deserve because it's not their decision to do these things. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. I think they would much rather be doing the things that, that looks good and that, that you know, assists a, a film rather than just completely being, you know, what's relied upon to even yeah. build entire sets these days. So, so Yeah. It's interesting. And, yeah, and I guess I'll just wrap up the conversation by saying, I mean, it's and, and CGI has certainly come a long way. Digital filmmaking has certainly come a long way. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. this was a this yeah. was a film that was made in the pioneering days of that. And so the fact that he was even able to pull it off, period, that ILM were able to pull it off, period, is, is impressive, regardless of what Absolutely. I, yeah. And yeah. and you, obviously you look at where films are now and there there is some extraordinary CGI work and I think it'll continue to be better integrated into filmmaking. Certainly, uh, digital cameras have gotten uh, just, you know, I mean, orders of magnitude better, right? Yeah. Um, since since the filming of this uh, movie. So it'll be, I'm just always excited to see where technology goes. And I think these tools will be better integrated. But yeah, what a, what a, uh, talk about cutting edge, uh, episode two. And, mm -hmm. and I hadn't thought about this in a long time since this podcast was, was really a sign of things to come wow yeah, yeah well yeah. uh here we are i guess uh at the end of the episode cullen i i appreciate your risque 
controversial yes, choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, boy, now now that I feel like it's it, like it's on me to like think of something equally. I'm like, hmm, what can I think of myself to try to top this? I don't know what that'll be. So I'll have to put some thought into that. But I really enjoyed our conversation as always, and everyone out there listening, I hope you did as well. And uh, yeah, until next time, everybody. We'll see you on the flip side. Yep. Bye bye. <laughs>